This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Welcome to part two of three of our Lead Up to the Legislature series. For each episode, we will check with government, opposition, and third party, respectively, on three policy priorities to expect from each party this spring sitting of the legislature. And just for listeners, as a heads up, this episode was recorded on Wednesday, February 24th. The first topic that we'll be chatting about today is mental health and wellness. We'll be chatting about what does an ideal mental health support system look like, what are the existing programs, and as well, what could we look at moving forward. The second topic that we'll be looking at today is very much related to mental health and its harm reduction. We're going to be chatting about some gaps in harm reduction on PEI and safer consumption sites. The third policy area that we'll be chatting about is the economy. Have our industries diversified enough and what does an economic vision alternatively from the existing one for PEI look like through this special guest lens? Our fourth policy area will be COVID-19 recovery. What should we look forward to in terms of healthcare and youth post the pandemic, as well as what does COVID recovery mean for this particular party? The last topic that we'll be chatting about is the provincial 2020-2022 budget. What are some must-have items and what are some things to keep an eye out for? And to chat with us about all these things today, is third-party MLA, MLA for Cornwall Meadowbank, former Minister of Finance, fan of the Sticky Date Pudding, and drinker of Fixed Link from Lone Oak, Heath McDonald. Thank you, Heath, so much for being with us this evening. Our first question for you is, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. It's uh, great, to, great to be with you guys again. Uh, we've had some conversations in the past, and uh, face-to-face, mind you, but... Uh, <laughs> This is good, and it's it's great to see you guys are branching out and doing something uh, in the community. I think too with dialogue, it's uh, pretty special. Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely, so I think what we've enjoyed the most with dialogue is getting to meet so many people, some of whom we know already, and you know, re- reconnecting with them, or on the other hand, meeting new people and learning from them. Now, our first official theme for you that we're going to be chatting about is mental health. Now, um, of course, the speech uh, for the state of the province was on Monday, and we know that the speech of the throne is coming tomorrow as well. And what has been established by the premier has been the PI Center for Mental Wellbeing, which would receive government funding, but operate independently with seats for each political party, as well as a number of community partners, such as Peers Alliance and the Canadian Mental Health Association. In your view, and in the view of the third party, what is uh, the value of this organization? Is it good policy and is it enough? Well, I think, you know, COVID-19, and uh, I think we've known this from the start, we were, we were being told by uh, the World Health Organization to be prepared for, uh, you know, a pandemic of mental illness and mental health issues. And so I think anything um, that we move towards in that direction to try to overcome some of these issues is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know much about what his uh, decision was or, or how that will be put together. We don't know that much about it, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that uh, as an MLA, a lot of my phone calls are from mental health uh, or mm-hmm. for mental health. And it's, uh, 
it's becoming extremely important and uh, age is not a barrier in this and mental health uh, doesn't discriminate uh, on anybody. It's, it's people uh, from very young age to our senior citizens. So anything in, in a positive way that uh, can help those individuals, I'll be a part of it for sure and I'll speak on it, but I sure don't want it to be bogged down in bureaucracy or have another, we have a lot of different mental health um, you know, numbers to call, text messages. I know UPEI may be possibly doing a test case on an app. Uh, we have all kinds of stuff out there. So I think, uh, you know, designate um, a committee or a group of people, you know, is a good suggestion, I think, and a good recommendation, but I really need to know the details of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing everywhere that really there's a pandemic of, of loneliness and of mental health coming up. Now, a mental health initiative that you have been very vocal about has been the mental health mobile crisis teams. Uh, we know that initially um, this uh, unit, which was due to be rolled out in March, was supposed to operate for 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and you had said in the Standing Committee on Health and Social Development on February 10th that you thought this service needed to be 24-7 as opposed to, you know, just half of that time. What impact do you think running this unit for only 12 hours a day as opposed to all 24 will have? Well, again, uh, mental health, you know, when you're in crisis, you're in crisis. And I think uh, people need to know that there's, uh, there's opportunities for them. Uh, during those crises. And I think, you know, advocating for a 24-7, I think back, it was back in 2018, this was first brought to, brought to the forefront by the previous Liberal government. And uh, I think at that time, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that it was, uh, there was an advocacy there for 24-7. And I think it's only rhyme to reason that, um, you know, people, when they're in crisis, it, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. And, uh, I think we need to ensure and to ensure those individuals that are going through this, that they can access that help uh, 24-7, no matter where they are on PEI. And uh, I think we have the resources to do that. Uh, We've heard from the Canadian Mental Health Association. uh, We've heard from psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, frontline workers. I think it's extremely important that we continue to invest in this mental health capacity as far as uh, these teams. We have saw what it has done to the school system as far as bringing in uh, those, uh, you know, student well-being mm-hmm. teams, yeah. and they're continuing to grow. So we know the problem is continuing, and it will only uh, possibly enhance, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, if we can, if we can get an early start on that in the, and uh, use this capacity as much as possible, uh, the 24-7, I think we can, we can accomplish a lot more and give a lot more security to those families that are dealing with people with mental health. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's true. We need to have the capacity for the 24-7 and to have people to provide continuous care to folks. Now, say in an ideal scenario, what do you think the ideal mental health support system on PEI would look like to you? I, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. If, if for example, and it's complicated, but to me, it's simple. If someone's in crisis, Mm -hmm. they need to know exactly where they can go, who they can call, that they can get immediate action and get the care that they need to overcome that. Because a lot of time you're dealing with time. 
and you don't have much time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, if someone is, is in a position where they're going to harm themselves, we need immediate action. And I think, you know, everybody involved in this and everyone is, is of the same mind and it's just coming with the best solution. And I think, it, you know, as a third party government, you just, you keep pressing and pressing uh, because, you know, and I'm sure all the members of the Legislative Assembly know that we need to do more mental health. The Premier has said it. Uh, COVID-19 has put a real lens on us. Mm-hmm. And I think if everybody works together and we all row in the same direction, I think we can make uh, mental health much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we completely agree with you here that, you know, there are gaps in the system that we hear about from folks on the ground and who are really accessing these services that need to be filled. And there's a lot of room for us to grow, you know, as a province to be able to fill in those gaps. Now, we're going to shift gears a little bit here, move from mental health to addictions and harm reduction. So still very connected, but, you know, a bit from a different lens here. We know that there have been more deaths um, in the past year from overdoses on PEI than there have been from COVID-19. Um, and of course, this kind of shows that there are gaps that exist currently in the harm reduction services and policies on the island. So what is the third party's policy stance on harm reduction and services that need to be provided? Well, I think, you know, hearing from Pierce Alliance on uh, harm reduction mm-hmm. and doing some research on what took place in uh, Nova Scotia and what presently takes place in your bigger centers like Toronto and Vancouver, um, I think, you know, in the past, we used to have a stigma around harm reduction or safe injection sites, what have you. But I think people are more well-informed now. And I think uh, if, if social media is good for one thing, it's, it's certainly good for educating people in some ways. In other ways, it's not. But <laughs> in, in some ways, it can, it can enhance, uh, you know, their knowledge on the, these types of issues. And I think when you have the police force coming out and you have certain municipalities coming out and you have uh, politicians not afraid to stand up and say, we need safe injection sites. You might not have seen that 10 years ago. Yeah. So now you're starting to see it. And I think, you know, uh, even the culvert being filled in uh, recently, I think put a real uh, emphasis on the situation. And I think you're dealing with people um, who require some dignity um, to be able to overcome some of their obstacles impediments in their life. And these are good people. And I think, uh, you know, once you realize that it could be someone in your family, could be a child, could be a relative, could be a neighbor, then you start to think about, wow, you know, I never thought of it like that. And a lot of times that's what happens is people don't tend to think about things until it happens to someone close to them. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, when you put a bigger lens on it and say, you know what, this is the right thing to do. Uh, let's put the the safeguards in around it. Let's put the education and the resources surrounding this to allow this to happen immediately. Mm -hmm. And there are two different um, levels of this. There's the the quick, I guess is is a simplified term for lack of better term. The quick way to do this immediately, which Pierce Alliance is saying, this is what we need now. And then there's the long term where we say, okay, we need to do it, but we want to ensure that we put all the resources around it, whether they be social resources, uh, that sort of thing. So I think there's there's two lanes here, but they can be both going at the same time. And I, yeah. I, I really uh, push government to ensure that we do the quick now, 
because the numbers are astounding on what's taking place on Prince Edward Island and across the country. And But as we're doing that long-term parallel, we need to do um, put, the, put the resources in place to make this uh, you know, a, a better place and a more educative and knowledgeable. And, but again, it comes back to ensuring people are treated with dignity. And uh, you know, because behind every person is a, a wife or, or a husband or a child or a family member. And sometimes we forget that. Uh, because this doesn't just affect uh, the individual, this yeah. affects a family, maybe even somewhat of a community. So yeah. I think if we keep that in mind, uh, we'll always make the right decisions. Mm. Absolutely. And I think you make several good points here. Number one, looking <laughs> at, you know, really not looking at people suffering from addictions as, you know, other, but acknowledging that they are part of our communities and they are people that we interact with every day that we just don't know about. And then number two is kind of the need for both short and long-term solutions because you need a Band-Aid for now um, to fix the problem mm -hmm. now, but the Band-Aid isn't going to last forever and there needs to be systemic change, there needs to be education, there needs to be more long-term measures. Now, when we're looking at the short-term Band-Aid piece, of course, what comes up time and time again is safer consumption sites. Now, you wrote an op-ed in December 2020 about the benefits of supervised injection sites on PEI. Um, this is a topic that we have also covered on episode 15 of Dialogue with Peers Alliance. Um, you've also spoken in favor of these sites in the House in the fall. Now, increasingly so, as you mentioned, with the closing of the culvert, there has been kind of widespread grassroots community support for the implementation of one such site in PEI. Now, the question is, why do you think there hasn't been government uptake on this yet? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure. And maybe there's work going on behind the scenes for this. Uh, you know, it's easy, it's easy for an opposition or third party to, uh, you know, say what they want to say and not have to worry about the perimeters around it. But I think at the end of the day, I think everybody's in a position right now to say, okay, we need this now. The numbers are there. Canadian Mental Health, Pierce Alliance, um, you know, our own doctors uh, are saying it. Uh, so I think, I think government needs to really move on to this relatively quickly. And again, it comes back to, you know, and they may have the concerns on the, the two lanes that I talked about, mm -hmm. but I really think those lanes need to be fulfilled parallel and we need to, the short term term, as you said, the Band-Aid solution, mm -hmm. and the long term, where we put more resources in ongoingly, uh, because addictions is, it is, again, similar to mental health, which is all related. Yes. Um, it's an illness. And uh, we want to make sure that we're doing everything possible uh, for those individuals and their families. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's interesting too, you know, even from your expertise and having been in government before, you kind of like scratch your head and say, well, you know, everything's lining up, you know, there is support and, and you know, the community is supportive of this, the experts are supportive of this. Um, there are multiple options on the table that we could pursue and, you know, why isn't this happening? So um, I think that's something that many people, um, not just dialogue listeners, but of course, I think the broader island community will be looking forward to, um, hopefully in the upcoming sitting of the legislature. Um, now we're gonna switch gears again to another area that, you know, you have 
have a lot of experience in and, and as a former minister uh, in economic growth, tourism and culture, but also in finance, going to focus on the economy now. So uh, back in the first day of the, uh, we'll say, quote unquote, emergency sitting of May, which of course turned into not so much an emergency sitting, but rather the regular spring sitting, you had stated on May 26 in the legislature that, quote, when you look back over the last couple of weeks, federal government has come through with most of the heavy lifting. If it wasn't for federal income support, such as the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, Canada Emergency Student Benefit, or business support, such as the 75% federal wage subsidy for small businesses, our island workers and businesses would be in an even tougher situation. Now, you criticized in this and, and many other times, not just in the spring sitting, but in the fall sitting, that the provincial government continues to rely on the federal government to pull through with these financial and economic supports. Do you feel as though the government's approach has continued that way as you have criticized, or do you feel as though they have diversified that approach as you have previously recommended? Well, you know, when you look back, and that seems like a long time ago, but I guess it, <laughs> it, it really isn't. But, uh, you know, I think on April 14th was the first time I think I asked for an exit strategy out of COVID that we should be starting to work on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, there, and there's a lot of chatter. And I know the focus was on uh, COVID-19 and uh, keeping people healthy. And there was some tough, really tough decisions had to be made by government and uh, and senior health officials. And I, I get that. But I, you know, I strongly believe on there's an opportunity here. We know that the federal government has contributed, I don't know the exact figure, but I'm sure it's 850 million or more into this mm-hmm. province yeah. in 10 months. We had 34,000 people on CERB at one time. So that's a 30-year workforce. Mm-hmm. So you look at that and say, okay, so so what do we do to commit to this? And and how do we, we make those investments and continue our growth like we were prior to COVID? Because the last six or seven years, as you guys know, in your previous roles, your student union, PEI was rocking it. And, uh, you know, there was, of course, you're going to have impediments with that because come six, with success comes some pitfalls too, and housing <laughs> being one of them. But, and I think, you know, government really hasn't been as, and I'm not sure, I'm not going to use the word transparent. Well, I'll use in their and in, in what they're trying to do. They've had some programs that they utilized, um, you know, to try to keep Islanders spending more money and keep the economy going a little bit. But I don't think they've done enough, and I'm being totally uh, sincere about that. And I think, mm-hmm. but I I also feel that there's an opportunity because I'm a firm believer in say. Uh, you know, your small businesses, I think we need major investments in small business. I think small businesses run Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. We've got a great group of great sectors. You know, we have some that are doing better than others. Um, you know, there, so there's opportunities there. When things get going tough, that's when government needs to step in and spend to create a stimulus. And we're seeing the federal government do that. So we're going to need the provincial government to do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And when things are good, that's when the government kind of can sit back on their heels a little bit and let the industries and sectors take care of themselves. So I think we haven't seen that yet. And maybe in uh, this budget coming up that we'll start to see some of that. But it has to be a transparent plan that business people, 
and individuals, residents of PEI understand exactly what the government is trying to do so we can all get behind it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and all of our industries have been impacted and, and a lot of those are made up of, of small businesses or family owned and operated, you know, and three of our main industries that traditionally have, I would say, kind of shouldered PEI's economy agriculture, aquaculture, and tourism. And those seem to be the ones that have been impacted, you know, the most out of COVID-19. You know, when we look at tourism, for example, and I know this is your background and these numbers aren't any surprise, but for listeners, in the last year, the Confederation Bridge was down 60.1%. The ferry was down 65.6%. The airport was down 94.1%. And motor coach was down 99.9%. So that's on the COVID side. Now, we see further to that and looking more, you know, current and moving forward, kind of, as we said, things in the short term and long term, climate change is going to just exacerbate those three industries. You know, for example, if we look at yields of potatoes or numbers of lobsters coming in, that's all going to be impacted by increased temperatures of the climate and oceans. So there's kind of two parts to this question, Heath. How has COVID-19 demonstrated a reliance on these industries? And further to that, is there a need to diverse the economy? And if so, what does that look like? Well, climate change, obviously, even though, you know, you talk about uh, the drought we had for potato farmers, Yep. Um, you know, a reduced crop by 14%, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the yield was good. But I can tell you, as speaking with a farmer as little as yesterday, uh, shipments to potatoes to the U.S. have slowed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's those things that people don't tend to see too much, but, uh, the, the farmers certainly do. And the fishermen, we've been very fortunate. We've had, uh, uh, we lucked in, I think, because, uh, we, we did find markets for our lobsters in the mm-hmm. fall season and, uh, or in the all season, I should say both seasons, but, and the price was relatively good. Um, but if you look at your oyster fishermen, the large oyster fishermen were only getting rid of likely or only doing capacity up to 65%. So mm-hmm. 35% of that. So that, that industry is down because of COVID right across North America, restaurants and so on and so forth. Things are closing up. And the muscles I would assume would be the same where we have near 80%. I think it's 80% of the North American market for PEI muscles. So yeah. I think when you talk a little bit about that and how climate change is affecting that, how we diversify it, I'll be quite honest with you. I think we've diversified very well. And uh, if we look now at what we have, and you, you mentioned our primary industries. Um, when I was growing up, it was fishing and farming and tourism. And now it's fishing, farming, tourism, IT, mm. aerospace, bioscience, yep. manufacturing, processing. So, and the list goes on. So, I think over the last few years, if you look back, you're going to see one of those sectors kind of waver at some point in time, but the other sectors are doing very well. So they seem to pick it up. Mm. And, you know, it's the old saying, if, if your economy can grow a little bit by maybe one and a half percent a year, I think you're going to have success as a province or as a country for that matter. Mm. Um, but we have to continue to invest and we have to be aggressive because right now what's happening is all provinces are going to be starting out equal footing again. And if you look back since 2013 or 14 on Prince Edward Island, we were extremely you know, fortunate. I mean, you talked a little bit about tourism when we reached a one and a half million visitor overnight stays, I guess it was. I mean, very, very fortunate when you consider Newfoundland 
is bringing in 700, 800,000 tourists. So we've almost doubled the numbers that they've had. And it's, it is devastating. And it's, that's why I said this summer will likely feel more of a pinch this summer when the funding from the federal government starts to run out. Now they've come in the last two or three days with more programs, but they never mentioned anything about um, wage subsidies. Mm-hmm. So there's somewhere where there, our province should be looking and saying, okay, uh, we're going to have to maybe invest in wage subsidies uh, for small businesses and whatever criteria that is. But I mean, they should be looking at that immediately because a lot of these places will not open unless, you know, they see that it's going to be even feasible and maybe some of them will lose business. And I'm sure there already have been some. Mm-hmm. So as far as your diversification, I think we do a pretty good job of that. Climate change most definitely is going to have an effect on it. But I see some opportunities in, in transitioning um, to clean tech. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's going to be major changes, whether it's farming or bioscience or what have you, whatever industry it is, I think there's some major opportunities there to transmission to uh, clean tech. And we're starting to see a little bit of it now, but I think uh, it could be another sector for us to even give us more diversification but help those, you know, those, those sectors that are, that need that help, including farming, including uh, manufacturing and processing. So mm-hmm. I hope that answers your question, Emma. Oh, no, that, that was wonderful. And it's a point well taken. Like you mentioned, for example, information technology, uh, bioscience, and as well, aerospace, those have totally skyrocketed specifically in the last Um, you know, four years since the implementation of the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement with the European Union. So that's something that's had a huge impact on PEI. So we're starting to see that um, on a kind of international scale and impacting us on a local scale. But you you mentioned clean tech and a number of different things. Um, The follow-up question, and this is kind of more like blue skies, you know, perfect situation again. Um, you know, what does a third party envision for an alternative economic vision for PEI? Um, you know, and maybe it includes clean tech, as you have mentioned, but maybe you want to speak a little bit further to that. Well, I think, you know, clean tech, obviously, I mean, it's, uh, I think everybody's looking at it, but, you know, being small with 156,000 plus people and, uh, you know, we do very well in our transfer payments from, uh, from Ottawa. And uh, we've, we've kind of built a, a really strong gig economy here as well, mm. and which nobody really talks about or identifies too much, and which is, which is an issue in itself. But anyway, um, I think clean tech is going to be the way of the future. Um, I introduced uh, um, a couple of guys to government here not too long ago, and they were looking at doing... Um, um, hydroelectricity. Mm. So we talk a lot about uh, windmills and we talk a lot about solar and uh, you know, we've, we've done some good things with, uh, uh, with buses, electric buses and things like that. We're seeing GM and Ford saying by 2035 or 2030, they're going to be all electric. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're starting to see the infrastructure has to be, has to be done. We're not going to have a choice. It's mm. like, if everybody's going to be driving electric cars by 2050 or approximately. Uh, Governments need to act quickly on ensuring that they can provide the infrastructure because there's nothing worse. And it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what they think or or how it's going to happen. And clean tech is, 
is going to be an avenue that we can, I think, uh, establish a real, um, I'm not sure how to say this, but establish Prince Edward Island like we did with bioscience, like yeah. we did with aerospace. Mind you, aerospace not doing good right now, but 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 we can we can do that and we can be a forefront runner of uh, clean tech because of our size mm-hmm. and people can look to prince edward island not only as the safest place in the world to visit but maybe it's a place that's net zero or you know and i think you have to have those visions um and you know a lot of people will say uh, you know well gee that's a long way off well it's not a long way off we've seen We've seen what climate change has done to our farming industry. Mm. We're seeing right now in Texas what climate change is doing. Yep. Um, there's nobody out there today would argue against climate change like they would five years ago. Mm. So you see the perception of people is really starting to turn and say, wow, this is real. You know, we used to have the little conversations about losing the shoreline. <laughs> and that used to, you know, have, you'd have a good debate on that. Now it's not. That's not even because they know it's real. And so I think it's important that we really uh, invest in clean tech. Uh, one way or another, it's coming. Uh, climate change is real. And if, if we're going to be successful as a province, we need everybody on board. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, you're saying you know, some of these targets feel like they're far off. I mean, the last year has felt like it's went by like that. So, you know, everything like is definitely relative that, you know, may feel far off, but you got to set those targets and then work aggressively towards them. Now, speaking a little bit in relation to kind of looking forward, and this is something you've talked a lot about in in this interview and and well previous to this, is COVID-19 recovery. Um, It also goes hand in hand with climate too. But our first question on that, and then we have two follow-up ones is, how would you define a COVID-19 recovery? Because I feel like that could include so many different things. Like I know we've been talking about climate and healthcare, but you know, it it impacts everything. So how would you define that? Well, you you know, you could, I guess, uh, dub it down to two things. And one is innovation, digital economy. And the second to me, and maybe even, it may be even the first is um, green transition. And I think if you're looking at ways to um, utilize your capacity in your investments as a government uh, on Prince Edward Island, I think those are two areas that go hand in hand. But those are two areas that we've seen over the past even few months have really come so far. And, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time when you look at what's transpired with even Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the financial side of things, and what's taking place there and how governments are going to manage that. Very, very interesting. If you look at how much federal money has been spent, uh, are we worried about how much we are spending or are we worried about uh, the debt ratio and how much, you know, we're paying on a monthly basis for the debt? So the, <laughs> It's a very interesting time, but I still say there's opportunities there. And there's opportunities there because you have the federal government willing to spend. Mm-hmm. And you have the, the provincial government saying, okay, we have to activate um, a very, very aggressive timeline on reinvestment. And I used to say when I was Minister of Economic Development to staff sometimes, 
investing in small businesses, which could be digital economy or green transition mm-hmm. economy, is like investing in an RRSP. It <laughs> takes two or three, maybe four years. Mm-hmm. But if you look at where interest rates are now, yeah, and you look at all the economists, what they're saying is saying the interest rates aren't going to go up for maybe 223. But then they say, and they're only going to go up like 0.25 or something like that. We have a runway of about 10 years, possibly, where we can make these investments and yep. grow Prince Edward Island's economy mm-hmm. to ensure that all our social side of things mm-hmm. can be paid for. So mm-hmm. I think there is some major opportunities uh, for governments right now. And it's going to be those governments that are the most aggressive to get out in front of this that are going to be successful in this. And you can't really play politics with it because we've never seen a COVID-19. And we've never been into this since the Second World War. So, and we know that there was a lot of money spent after the Second World War. But I think uh, provincial governments really have to jump on the bandwagon. And if they're not prepared to do that, they will be left behind. That's my personal opinion. But... (laughs) No, I no, think you have to be really aggressive in this. And but back to your original is the digital economy and the green transition, I think, are two of the most important things that government should be looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you brought up a number of different things that I think kind of tie into this next question you were saying about how investments right now, they're going to be more long term so that we can be able to pay for some more social services. Evidently, with COVID-19, one of the biggest costs, if not the biggest cost has been the healthcare system. But then also to tie it to that climate pieces, it's also been one of the most wasteful, um, simply out of the necessity of, you know, sanitation and um, keeping people healthy. So it's kind of been impacted on both sides. You know, we are spending the most in that, but we're also wasting the most. So kind of looking at the parallels of COVID and climate, healthcare system has been totally impacted, not just in that sense, but also, you know, if we look right here on PEI, for example, how they had to adjust the operations of each of the different hospitals Mm -hmm. to be able to accommodate to COVID units. Um, You know, staff burnout has been a major issue, you know, not just in the hospitals, but as well in a number of different clinics and other health services. Um, The closing and reopening of services what does that look like on um, both kind of the operational size and then as well kind of a user end perspective of you know if I need x where do I go I don't know it used to be here now it's here this sort of thing Um, so really what we've seen is the healthcare system has been stretched totally to the max Um, how do you think that current strain on the healthcare system due to COVID-19 you know how does that tie into that recovery piece that you've been talking about well, I think you made some really good points and you, you don't think about that much because again, you're in the situation of trying to keep people healthy and, you know, the green space is kind of overlooked in that regard. And I remember talking to um, a, a senior's home um, owner and has two or three of them. And, it, and uh, I think it was uh, either the end of August or about September, I guess, he said he was up to about uh, spending about $400,000 extra on extra staff, cleaning yeah. staff, supplies, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot because nobody's really thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, obviously, because they're business people and they're, they're doing what they do. But um, it's, it certainly has changed the way we look at healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. 
And I think everybody is kind of takes a step back to realize how fortunate we are um, on Prince Edward Island and, and Canada on providers. And, uh, you know, everybody wants it yesterday. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if your phone doesn't turn on for two seconds, you're like, what is wrong with this phone? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, that's human nature because you expect more and you expect it quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think, you know, the healthcare system, we talked about mental health. I think COVID put a lens on that. And, and that's a good thing because it needs to be fixed. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's how quickly and, and how we fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, senior care homes, long-term care, uh, COVID has put a lens on that. Mm-hmm. And we need more. We have an aging population, aging, and we need more long-term care. Uh, dementia patients, COVID has put a lens on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they close the, the mental health unit, you, they move dementia patients into the mental health unit. And, you know, so, so you've seen a trickle-down effect. And uh, the burnout of, you know, I don't necessarily see it as much here, and maybe that's just me, but the stories that we're hearing out of the U.S., where the pandemic really struck, you know, they're, they're sad. I mean, it's, it's scary stuff. So we know our nurses are overworked. We know our doctors are overworked. We know there's a short labor shortage in those professions. Um, it's how we, how we overcome that obstacle. And, you know, if I had the magic wand to say, here's how you do it, I, I'd likely be a consultant as opposed to a politician <laughs> and maybe working alongside government. But uh, because it's, it's tough, but you have to keep trying. You have to be innovative. You have to think outside the box. And uh, I, think, I think there's a will, there's a way. There's no better place on Prince Edward Island to live or bring up a family. So um, I think there's opportunities there as well for us, especially during this pandemic when you see people in Toronto moving to the suburbs or trying to get to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, or you may see people moving home from Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it really put a light on... Um, the difficulties and and what they have and money's not everything mm-hmm. and so you know life health family um, is is just as important or more important in some of these cases and that's why we're seeing migration from other provinces coming back to Prince Edward Island and that's a good thing mm-hmm. um, I think there's opportunities in that as well but again we have to encompass all these situations and all these opportunities and set a path forward. And I think that path forward is called the exit strategy out of COVID. And I think if we do that appropriately, uh, we'll have success for a long time. Mm, Yeah. And you bring up a number of different good points. Like, for example, you were saying how there's been a lot of shortages pertaining to, you know, nursing and as well um, doctors and various other professions here on PEI. Um, And of course, I'm biased, but I always look at that through an education lens and think, you know, how are we tying the education realm into the uh, employment realm and this sort of thing. And I always think about, you know, how are youth being impacted by COVID-19? And I know that's, that's something, no doubt that you, you've been a strong advocate for. And is of course where we first met. Um, And, you know, we look at that youth lens through not just, you know, nursing students or, you know, um, medical students, we think like, you know, high school students right here on PI, how are they adapting to these new mask protocols, class 
classroom sizes, um, you know, break and bus protocols, or, you know, some post-secondary students attending class online for almost close to a year now, depending yeah. on what program you're in, um, you know, myself included, so definitely bias there. Um, or, you know, even just young people simply just looking for meaningful work during this time, you know, COVID-19, similar to, you know, a lot of the different things that we, we've said already, has exacerbated these existing issues that youth face in um, mm -hmm. accessing post-secondary or, um, you know, accessing meaningful mental health supports when they need them um, and just really kind of expose it. Housing is another piece too. It's so much more, you know, for example, you were talking about earlier, um, different wage subsidies program, one of them being the jobs for youth. Um, well, that's awesome. And, and, you know, we want to be able to incentivize small businesses and organizations to be able to hire young people sometimes that's not possible because of just the way they've been impacted by COVID-19 yeah. you know maybe they're not in a position where their operations are su su sufficient enough where they could take on another staff person mm -hmm. um, or maybe they can't make up that other percentage that they're taking on the 25 percent or the 50 percent you know um, so this is you know both in a financial piece and a social piece youth have been really impacted by COVID-19 so um, again on this theme of COVID-19 recovery you know what do you think that looks like for youth and various youth policies well you know we've and it's a tough one um i'll just say last friday i think it was last friday i went out to uh, bluefield high school which is not my riding but it's the next riding and uh i had a chance to visit with it's my old alternator, by the way. It's my old school. So I'm a Bobcat. Go Bobcats. <laughs> but uh, I'm a Bobcat, yeah. And uh, so, you know, and it, the construction association was there. And they had a uh, video reality camera set up. And uh, they had students there lined up. Students lined up wanting to get on this video reality to do augmented reality, to do uh, drive say, uh, uh, HiMac, do electrical work, do plumbing work, what have you. And uh, I thought, well, I'm watching these, and they're, they're getting excited to get on and do this because they're trying to figure out what they want to do when they're mm -hmm. done a high school. And they're, not everybody's post-secondary, mm -hmm. not everybody's college, whatever. And, uh, and we need laborers. So I was, you know, that's, that's thinking outside the box. I think it's the only association east of Ontario or maybe even in Canada that's actually doing this type of thing mm -hmm. so that's being innovative and I think that's what we have to do with uh, our youth today is we can't be traditional anymore mm -hmm. and you know what are the impediments from keeping youth getting getting an education it's it's not what we do for youth it's what we don't do w what are those impediments and if we can remove those barriers um, you know, if we can, you know, provide some sort of free education or provide, you know, to the uh, international students, some sort of, um, workers co-op and so on and so forth to try mm -hmm. to keep them here, um, mm -hmm. that we're not necessarily doing now, then those are the types of things that we really have to think about. Mm. And we have to start it earlier. Um, we can't wait till you get to grade 12. I just did a reference letter to today for a young student that's uh, getting ready to move on post-secondary. And 
you know, chatting. I'm not sure she's still sure what she wants to do, <laughs> which is fine, but you shouldn't have to, but you need to have a direction, you know? And uh, so it's, it's tough for our youth today. When you look at our service sector, which is our hospitality industry, which is our tourism industry, you know, if there's no wage subsidies, it's going to be a lot of blue collar work by the owner operators and there's going to be less employment. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to take that into consideration. And that's why I said to you that wage subsidy is going to be so important if the federal government doesn't continue with it, which they haven't mentioned, and the provincial government doesn't pick it up. I think it's extremely going to be extremely important for the province to step in on this one and say, yeah. we better help, especially this industry. Mm -hmm. You talked about the numbers in the tourism industry. The majority of the jobs are those jobs. A lot of them are youth and students. Mm -hmm. And they need that to continue their education. Mm -hmm. So that's extremely important because it's a trickle-down effect to the youth. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think we have to be more open on how we uh, direct youth, uh, support youth. And I think we have to use innovation, just like Sam Sanderson and the Construction Association is doing. Because it, it was uh, pretty fun to watch those students, how excited they were getting just to do that. So I don't know if I answered your question in full, but I think there is, it is a tough situation for young people. And it's not going to be easy, that's for sure, over the next you know, year at least. And you mentioned too uh, the Sam Sampson and the construction company. I, again, full disclosure, I'm very biased, but that was actually a recommendation from the case team program this past summer. Not my team, uh, a different team. I'll give them uh, the awesome. shout out. But they had that was their fir our first week. Um, that was their client was the construction association and looking at how can we engage. Yeah different types of youth, um, you know, future employees, things like this in a new different way. Um, and so actually it was an international student who had a brother who was looking into VR. And so she contacted him and then they made a contact with someone working in VR and then did the research. It kind of fleshed out this really kind of at first bizarre, you're like VR and construction, but then <laughs> came out with a really neat idea. And of course, Sam Samson loved it and, and spoke very highly of the program. And then now to hear it kind of full circle as a former participant of the case team program, how that does actually have that direct impact on youth. Like, anyways, that's so, exciting to hear and and really awesome to yeah. see that so, so really what it. you're saying emma <laughs> really what you're saying is you should listen to youth because they know <laughs> yes i agree awesome. i agree yeah. we'll get that yeah. in writing <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking as well it's a youth solution to recruit more yeah. youth like it yeah. makes yeah. sense now uh, throughout you know this interview you've raised you know a number of points about things we should be investing in and you know programs we should be looking at uh, now we know that the shining star of the spring sitting is always the operational budget of the province. That's what everyone looks forward to. Some folks call it the most exciting day of the year. Uh, now, um, this really details the priorities of the province for the upcoming year. Now, you know, as someone who has had, you know, uh, experience in the position of Minister of Finance and as really an expert in the matter, are there things in particular that you think absolutely need to be included in this upcoming operational budget? Well, I think your number one's what is obviously healthcare. Mm -hmm. Number two is usually education and then your social programs. Um, 
But I think this operational budget will likely be quite different, I would assume, um, from previous operational budgets due to the fact of COVID-19. And what COVID-19 has done is, and I keep using the word lens, but I think there's no other term that best suits it, is provided us with a, a real distinct direction on where we need to make improvements. And of course, we've talked quite a bit extensively on um, mental health. And, you know, it, it's going to be ongoing to uh, accomplish the labor shortage in, for nurses or doctors or what have you, um, so, or those professions. So that's going to be ongoing, and that'll be in every budget likely from now till eternity until we can, we can do that. But I think COVID has really changed, I think, the direction and some of the operational budgets and how we, how we focus more on um, those weaknesses that came to the forefront in the last 10 months. And I think that's what I'll be looking for tomorrow, along with, again, the digital economy and the clean tech side of it. Because I think you can't, you can't look back. You have to continue to look ahead as well. So it, it'll be a fine line on where they, where they go with their budget as far as uh, the mental health supports, health care, education, and then looking to restart our economy uh, to the full extent that it was running prior to COVID-19 will take a very good vision um, for and, and process to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of things that, you know, now that you've brought up, we'll be watching out for in the upcoming operational budget. So uh, I think this concludes the formal part of our interview with you today. Uh, thank you so much. The next part is the more serious part, and it's our beer panel. Now, this panel started out with folks recommending beers, and then it took a life of its own. And now we talk about anything and everything from beers to recipes to restaurants. So as our guest for the day, is there any beer or restaurant recipe, anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Um. Well, I, you know, with craft beer growing so much, it's, it's fun to try different beers. Uh, but one of my favorite is the fixed link. Mm. So I like the fixed link, but I do like to, you know, spread my uh, uh, tastes around <laughs> and, uh, and try different, different beer from, because we have a, a great supply of uh, craft beer, craft industry here that's second to none. So it's actually kind of fun because it, you know, it, it's it's something you're you're spending local, and uh, they're all local businesses, so it's it's a fun thing to do. As far as I'm a meat and potatoes guy, I love <laughs> pasta, but my go-to will be, you know, uh, a medium well steak is just as good to me as anything, or just a burger, and it has to be island beef, of course. But of course, um, yeah. But sticky date pudding at the um, um, the uh, I'm trying to think of the. I can't think of it. it's right in the tip of my tongue. Oh, it's just opening up at close for the winter. No, uh, I know exactly where it is. The Hillhurst Inn. No, the Hill, it's right down, oh. just down a little bit from Hillhurst on the corner. It's um the it starts with a D. Um, yeah, Dundee Arms. Dundee Arms. Holy oh my goodness! Cow. <laughs> you know my my wife says to me, just go through the alphabet. You'll think of it. <laughs> I should have went through, and I never listened to her. <laughs> Yeah. recommend the sticky day pudding at the Dundee Arms. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. 
Well, awesome. I, I suppose I can go next. Um, I think, you know, right now, uh, a steak and a fixed link sounds really good, to be honest. But, uh, the beer that I'd like to recommend today would be the Blueberry Ale from Gahan. I've probably recommended this before, but um, it's a fun yeah. beer. It's very light. It's very easy to drink, and it pairs well with anything, um, especially with the mac and cheese I made the other day. So that's why I'm thinking of it right now. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think the beer that I'm going to recommend today, and I've definitely recommended it before, is the Grape Day IPA from Upstreet. Um, now, the reason why I recommend it, I like it just because it's an IPA, but I also like the design on it. It's like a beach scene. And I don't know, <laughs> reflecting on a day in February where we've just like had snow day after snow day and then rain and then cold and then warm. I missed a summer and I can't wait for summer again on PEI. So anyways, that would be the beer I'd like to recommend um, making me nostalgic for the summer. And it's so <laughs> true. Like there's so many great breweries here on PEI, like, and in such close corners, like you could really drive around, well, have someone designated to drive, of course, <laughs> but you could really drive around and visit a number of different ones. So we're, we're definitely lucky. Yeah. yeah, I feel like we've said this before on the podcast. It's like being in PR really turns you in a bit of a beer snob where you, <laughs> you just want to drink all the craft stuff. Yeah. You know, the three of us will be stopping on the way home to pick up a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's Absolutely. all right. Well, Heath, we've asked you so many questions and taken up so much of your time the night before the, the opening of the ledge. So we're definitely appreciative and it's wonderful to chat with you again and best of luck too. It's I think going to be an exciting time. The, the, the new schedule, it's a longer haul, so it's yeah. not kind of in and out. It's okay. We're hunkered down and we're here for a bit now, but uh, best yeah. of luck on that. I hope it goes well. Thanks very much. And thanks to you guys for what you're doing. I think it's great to see you come from where you came from to where you're going and uh, keep it up. Uh, the communities need good people like you. And I'm looking forward to the ledge actually and the new, the new sitting hours and so on. So it's interesting and change is good, I think. So thanks very much. Thank you so Thank much. You. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, Thank you so much for joining us today, Heath, and for chatting with us uh, for the past hour. This is all the time that we have for today, folks. As always, our intro and outro music is Gaspazy by the incredible Shane Pendergast. His new songs, It Slips Away and Autumn Rain, are available on Spotify, iTunes, and a number of other platforms as seen on his website, shanependergast.com. Today's opening and closing uh, portions were recorded following the public health announcement Sunday, February 28th, where it was announced that PEI would be entering lockdown for the next 72 hours, as well as having a circuit break over the next two weeks. With that in mind, everyone, please stay warm and stay safe. This has been Dialogue.